Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one featuring First Minister of Wales, Carwin Jones, a man who on the day I interviewed him earlier this week had 41 days left as First Minister. So uh, a lot of the conversation centred around that, his plans for his departure, what parts of the job he'd miss, what he'd learned from leadership, he's led Wales now for nine years, and all the things you'd expect us to talk about, Wales' role uh, in the Brexit negotiations, his relationship with the other devolved institutions, the politics of the UK, the politics of Brexit, the Welsh Labour Party. He was absolutely brilliant. And the, the thing that struck you from the moment he walked on stage to the second he left was... What a, what a loss he's been, really. What a loss he will be, absolutely, to, to Wales and, and, and to politics in general. But what an impressive politician he is. What a pragmatist he is. He's obviously ideological, but you really learn the lessons of leadership from sitting opposite someone like that. But on top of that, someone who you kind of wish on a UK level had been a lot more prominent that the Labour Party and that politics really needs people like Carwin Jones um, and that whilst he's done phenomenal work for Wales and is very impressive, um, there's always that sense that perhaps, you know, from a public's point of view, if not his, um, he could have achieved more on a bigger stage. But he was absolutely brilliant, really funny, really open, really thoughtful. And just a real... There's something really refreshing about his pragmatism in the sense that it's not an ideologically free pragmatism he has clear beliefs he comes from a left-wing tradition um but just how straightforward he makes things sound and there are so few politicians that are able to do that that are just very clear-sighted about the task at hand um and we talk about the things he's learned from leadership what his failings or shortcomings might be for want of a better word he really was a, a classic guest and it was a pleasure and a real delight really that he came to do it while still in power um, and uh, perhaps as part of uh, a sort of Blair-style farewell tour, although I think in a, in a very different way. He was brilliant. Enjoy it. Hello, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, is this thing on? Welcome to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Oh, excellent. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Welcome to the show, one and all, uh, for a thrilling night. Uh, and a wonderful guest I wanted to interview for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. But I am, I genuinely am. I really am. Of course I am. Uh, you may remember a few months ago we talked about Kate Osamar, who is the Shadow Secretary of State for International Development, uh, who'd been done for uh, plagiarising word for word Barack Obama speeches. Uh, a, a phenomenal story. She plagiarised Barack Obama's first speech when he became leader of the free world. When he said, if there's anyone here tonight who believes that America is a place where all things are not possible. Kate had taken that line at a hustings in Edmonton when she won. He said, if there's anyone here tonight who still believes that Edmonton is a place where all things are not possible. And if you've been to Edmonton, not only is it a place where all things are not possible, you can't get a pint after 11 o'clock. 
Anyway, her son is her, is also a head of comms. Her mum is a member of the House of Lords. And this is the Labour Party, remember? Uh, who are, uh, all, all, all against nepotism. And uh, Ishmael Osamar, her son, is also a Haringey councillor. Um, but this week was convicted of uh, smuggling drugs with intent to supply into last year's Bestival. Uh, he had a street value of £2,500. Exactly, it was at Bestival. So to be fair to him, he needed the drugs to get through it. <laughs> I think it was the XX and JBT. I mean, who wouldn't have taken ketamine to that? <laughs> the street value of £2,500 he smuggled in. Uh, and at first he wasn't going to resign. Um, but he's now resigned as a councillor, but not resigning as uh, his mum's head of communications. Um, <coughs> oh my God, yeah, he, he said he wanted to draw a line in the matter, but uh, he knows snorts it. Um, but his, uh, <laughs> he, uh, his mother is the Shadow Secretary of State for International Development, and she's refusing to fire him, um, because obviously if she gets into government and is the Secretary of State for International Development, that happens a lot of supply chains. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing, actually, that with a drug dealer son like that, who's a head of comms, it's amazing that none of her speeches have been affected by any of this. If he's writing her speeches for her, we need to make new allies uh, as we look to shape a new world. Uh, I spent a lot of time recently in Colombia with a group of community leaders called the Cali Cartel. Uh, group of community-minded individuals, and we got chained off our nut. Hang on, Obama didn't write this. What's going on here? <laughs> Uh, Nigel Farage, uh, as well, Peter Bone, who's a, a Tory MP, has uh, said this week that despite being a Conservative, he believes that Nigel Farage should be leading Brexit negotiations, and if he had, we'd have left the EU years ago. Um, he, he's right, uh, but not for the reasons that he thinks. Uh, and Farage himself gave an interview this week where he said, Well, look, if they sent me over there, I just say, Look, here's my negotiator. And this is how he described his negotiator style. What would he do if he was negotiating Brexit? He said, Look, I just say to them, Look, Listen, we're leaving, we're leaving soon, and stop being silly by this. <laughs> As if no one's thought of just saying, no, we are leaving, by the way. Stop playing. Imagine him at the UN. Imagine him during the Iraq war. Well, look, we simply say to Iraq, to, to, to Saddam Hussein, let the weapons inspectors in, or we'll fuck this for a game of sailors. <laughs> Incredible. How would he negotiate our divorce bill? Look, you're saying 39 billion, I say 15 billion, mix in the middle, we'll shake on it, and I'll throw him in the coat. <laughs> he's, uh, he's thankfully not uh, negotiating our, our withdrawal from the European Union. Uh, he held an alternative rally, leave, uh, means leave, held uh, an alternative rally on the, on the week of the People's Vote, you might have seen him in Torquay. And he was also up north, and this footage of him on top of this double-decker bus, shouting to what you would presume was a huge crowd of people. Uh, in the street. All you see is Farage on the bus saying, we absolutely need to leave, the government needs to ensure that we leave the European Union as soon as possible, and no deal, frankly, would be better than the mess the government are giving us. And uh, it looks great, and the camera pans around, and literally, all that is there are two dogs. <laughs> Rather than not bother, he's just giving a speech to two dogs. One of them, to be fair, does start barking. Yeah, that's right, he's barking what we're all thinking. Yeah. He, uh, just incredibly, I'm surprised he didn't start riffing with them. That's the problem with the dog community, it's German shepherds. That's right. Yeah. The Liverpool takes in the police, they get bigger kennels, they get white screen bowls, white screen bowls. Uh, and of course, uh, Donald Trump faces a, a, number of, uh, a number of challenges, as he does on a monthly basis to his presidency. Uh, there's this caravan of, it's being called a caravan, of, of refugees heading up from South America <laughs> to the American border. 
And, and he put out a statement and said, I believe, by the way, that in this caravan people, there are terrorists and Middle Eastern people. And he was asked if he had any proof. He said, there is no proof. <laughs> no proof. But they could be, they could be. And they, there may be, by the way, there may be terrorists in there. But there's no proof, but that means that there could be. In a way, you can't fault the sort of mad logic of it. But if you watch the full clip, it's remarkable because there's no proof, but then there's no proof of anything. <laughs> like, you can't win an argument. Prove it. Well, I'm, I'm proving that I'm stood here, but you could be a hologram. Who am I? Am I the president? There's no proof. <laughs> no proof of anything. Uh, the idea as well that Middle Easterns are involved in this. Whole lot of Middle Easterns in there. What, you want me to name them? Well, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, uh, must have a million from the Bina. He was there. Uh, shake your booty. And uh, there was some other, Aladdin, by the way. Aladdin was there. With a genie friend, very clever people, by the way. Great people, genius. Very I would welcome them, but not the Aladdin dude. In fact, I met the Aladdin dude in London, and he was dressed as a woman to get into Panto. And it, that just says everything. They're sneaky. <laughs> Sticky people. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you've been a wonderful audience. We have a phenomenal guest uh, after the break, someone who wants to interview for a very long time. Yay! It's always true, that's always true. And he gave, we will have a break, but he gave one of the best speeches of this year's Labour Party conference. One of the best speeches I've seen at the Labour Party conference for a very long time. And I'm delighted that he's come all the way from Wales uh, to be here tonight. Um, happy Halloween. Do people believe in that sort of shit? That's it. Learn from the referendum. Never ask the public a question. <laughs> it would have been better if that was the referendum. Do you believe in Halloween? Yes or no? It's fucking Halloweeniacs. <laughs> right, anyway, that's enough of that. We're going to have a quick break. I'll be back in a bit. For now, I've been Matt Ford. Thank you very much. See you soon. <laughs> section. Tonight's guest is a very special guest indeed. <coughs> I always feel like I should rearrange. Like Vince Cable. Dozel <laughs> <laughs> Gitch, in case our Mary comes home and sits in a big chair. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a phenomenal guest. I think I'm right in saying this is the first guest we've had who is currently a leader at the time that I have interviewed them. Uh, and our guest tonight is not just the leader of a party, but technically the leader of a country. Uh, he is the First Minister of Wales. <laughs> You've heard of Wales, right? It's just, uh, <laughs> just west of Bristol. <laughs> it's a wonderful part of the world if you haven't been. Um, and he's uh, a rare bird in today's politics. Uh, not only has he uh, been leader of his country for nine years, uh, he's uh, known government for almost 20 years, highly experienced, and gave, as I said before the break, uh, a rare thing these days, which was a really good speech at a Labour Party conference. Uh, <laughs> and that is no, that is no uh, reflection of sort of the ideology uh, or the uh, political direction of the party, just the, uh, sometimes the, the dearth of talent uh, at shadow cabinet level. Here's an Emily Thornbridge for me, and I'm sure we all watched it all week uh, on BBC <laughs> Parliament. Um, were, uh, they were the two standout speeches, and here's in particular, from a great oral Welsh tradition, um, Sound like there's going to be a rude joke there, and there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> not, so, not that sort of oral tradition. Uh, so, although, who knows, let's find out. Uh, let's find out indeed. He is uh, someone that I have definitely wanted to interview for a very long time. Hey! He's a huge star of UK and Welsh politics. Please raise the roof for the First Minister of Wales, Carwin Jones! <laughs> 
Well, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Um, I, you, you referenced it at the start of your party conference speech, but you, you've grown a beard. <laughs> Often, Labour, you've gone the other way. Labour figures tend to have beards young and then shave them off in office to appear more... Um, I was going to say photogenic. I realised that was sounded rude. To appear more moderate. Are you saying I'm not young? Well, I think these days you are for a politician. 51, yeah. but you look very good on it. Yeah, well retreated. <laughs> But what's, what's the logic going growing a beard in office? Does that not make you look radical? You know, um, I didn't shave in the summer on holiday, and my wife said, just keep it. And I thought deeply about it and thought, sod it, why not? <laughs> you know, why not? And it's, um, if she'd have said shave it off, that would be the end of it. But look, I've got it because the moustache is the colour my hair once was. So it gives me a, yeah, it's a bit of a memory for me, so I can remember that before I was 30, I had hair that actually wasn't grey. But uh, yeah, you know. Bit of a trendsetter, hopefully. And how do you feel now? Because you are, you are, you are coming to the end of your term in office yeah. as, as leader of the Welsh Labour Party, leader of, of Wales as a country. Um, I'm trying to think of other leaders. Tony Blair went on a bit of a farewell tour. Mm. Have you got a, a farewell tour planned? Is this part of it? Yeah, sort of. I've been going to a few constituencies around Wales. What my staff want me to do is to go to all 40. So I've done a few uh, so far. Um, usually just flying visits, but yeah, there's a little bit of a farewell talk. Look, there are not many politicians who get the opportunity to dictate the time of their own departure. And I announced in April I'll be going at the end of this uh, year, after nine years uh, in, the, in the job, so yeah, give me time to prepare. And do you feel a sense of sadness about leaving? You know, it's mixed. I miss it, because it's the, the job in the world I would have always wanted to do. Yeah, I'm not sad. And, um, you know, I'll miss all that. I'll miss the... Um, the I miss questions because I, I love uh, First Minister's questions, but it's the time it takes. You know, the kids are 18 and 16, they've only ever known me as a government minister. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice to have the odd weekend free here and there and not be committed to doing things all the time and just do something else. You, and someone else deserves a go. You know, you can't sit there forever in a day. You know, it's not your job to have for as long as you feel like. You've got to, at some point, offload it to somebody else for them to take over the reins. Yeah, but that's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, it, it, there must be times when it feels like, and I don't know if you do look around at your, your potential successors and think, actually, as Tony Blair said, the irony is you leave the job at the point you're most qualified. Do you feel like that? Yeah, but you like, leave the job at a time when people are saying, why is he going, not why is he staying? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the key to it, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I've been lucky to be in that, uh, in that position. And I've never seen politics as something that you should do as a career until you retire. You know, I, I came into it when I was 32. I've been a lawyer for 10 years. I'd like to do something else than using the experience that I, uh, that I have. I, I, you, know, I, you need to keep fresh. You know, politics is a calling. It's not a career. You've got to get as much experience beforehand before you come into it. You've got to have a lot of luck. You know, I, I, was, I was lucky. I, got, I stood for election for the first time in the in Assembly Wales. in 99. You know, in a, and, well, first of all, I stood was in 95 as a councillor. Won the seat that we'd never won before. Uh, so I, you know, I've had a bit of luck on the way. Starting in '95, you know, it was easy to win an election in '95 if you're a Labour candidate, and you know, I've, I've just been the right person at the right time since then. In terms of the Welsh Labour Party now, uh, in terms of its political direction, is it is it similar ideologically to the to the Welsh Labour Party that you joined, or is it well, changed? Well, it, it's it's mixed. I mean, there are different views within the party, but we don't have the same kind of division. Uh, that you'd get in uh, in Westminster because there are so few of us, really. There are only 29 <laughs> of us. You know, you can't spend your time fighting with each other. We've never had a majority in the Assembly. Mm -hmm. uh, we came in with 29 out of 60 seats uh, two years ago and everyone said to me, well, you know, you're going to lose and uh, there won't be a Labour government in the future. 
And the one Lib Dem who was elected, I brought her into the government, and she's a really good minister. And we've also got an ex-plied independent in the government, so that's 31 out of 60. So there's the, uh, there's the majority. But you've got to do it that way in our system. You can't sit in a bunker and just work as one party. You've got to reach out to other parties. You've got to bring people in. If you're going to get legislation through, you've got to get cross-party support. And that's the system we're used to. Because your leadership was on a knife edge quite recently, where it was you against Leanne Wood for the, in, a, in a tied vote. Yeah. Um, it, it would have been democratically tricky to have Leanne Wood as a leader of such a small group and yet leading a country, don't you think? Yeah, we knew it was going to happen. In our system, uh, the First Minister is elected by the Assembly first, and it was, it was a dead heat. Uh, we knew that was going to happen because we knew what was going on behind the scenes. But the worst thing that happened to me was sometimes under bright lights, my eyes started to water. And I've been sitting there and my eyes started to water and really sting. So I thought, well, I don't want to be seen as if I'm crying. So I took out my handkerchief, dabbed my eyes, and that was the shot on the front page of the paper the following day. <laughs> Me like that with a handkerchief in front of my in front of my eyes. But in the end, we, we got a position where uh, we got a government elected. Uh, and it's it was, always, it's always, you're always at the seat of your pants in our electoral system. It's the way it works. How does it feel? Because it's a very odd. I mean, this is the politics of the devolution of the U mm -hmm. United Kingdom. But when you have leaders' debates, and I understand that Leanne Wood has to be on there, but in a way, you have a larger mandate than Leanne Wood. So yeah. in 2015 and 2017, when she's going up, was almost, in a weird way, the voice of Wales. She's the voice of Plaid. Yeah. It's fantastically frustrating. It really is. Because in a general election, the broadcasters will say, well, look, this is Labour, Conservatives, Plaid are a separate party. You're just going to sit there and, uh, and put up with it. But it uh, didn't do us any harm, anyway. <laughs> uh, the election in 2017, we did a lot better than the uh, polls told us we would. Yeah, she, I mean, uh, in terms of a political leader, she seems to sort of lack a killer instinct, I would say. I remember watching her interview on Victoria Derbyshire, and Victoria Derbyshire, in the run-up to the last election, said, Leanne Wood, what do you, what do you think of Theresa May? Mm. And she went, oh, well, you don't know, really. Is she from Bristol? I <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't know, really. I don't know that Theresa May. Is she like that? She, yeah. No, no, she's... Uh, Leanne, Leanne's not the leader of Plaid anymore, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, Adam Price is... I like Leanne. I think she's, you know, somebody who whose heart is really in the, uh, in the right place. And I don't think she's been well-treated by her, by her own party, to be honest. And she's done a lot for women in politics in Wales. And that's something I, you know, I've said to her, look, you can really uh, take that as something that's, that's been something you've, you've really advanced as an agenda. So why, why do you think, and this is in a period when Scottish independence has been such a big deal and, and continues to be, why hasn't Welsh independence or the Welsh nationalist movement had the same impetus and, and support, do you think, that, that the SNP have had north Well, what would independence give us? If you spoke to most people in Wales, they'd, they wouldn't say we're against independence in principle. They'd say, what's the point of independence? We've got our own government, we're in our own affairs, support their own language, we've got our own football team, our own rugby team. What would independence give us? It wouldn't make us more Welsh than we are now. Uh, and we'd lose money as well, because being part of the UK, we'd benefit from it. So people are very proud of their identity, you know, they, they, we, we see devolution now with four to five to one support uh, in Wales, but they don't see the point of independence. And why is that? Do you, th do you think if Plaid were more effective that they could, that they could sort of germinate a, a desire for it? No, I think what happened was, uh, uh, my colleagues in Scotland, they, 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 they retreated from the ground of identity politics. They let the SNP take the ground of all those people who felt very Scottish but weren't in favour of independence but would lend the SNP their vote. And retreated from it. We went the other way. We, we went onto that ground, deliberately presented ourselves as a Welsh party with a strong Welsh identity, but that doesn't mean you're in favour of independence. You, know, you don't have to be a sovereign state to have a strong identity. Uh, and that's what we did as a party. It's, it's worked for us. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Wales voted to leave the European Union? Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what you can remember is that most people in Wales read the English papers. We don't have, we've, only got, we've only got two daily papers in Wales uh, in the morning. There are some evening papers as well. We don't have the, the kind of press that, that exists here in London. And of course, the London papers don't produce Welsh editions. Mm -hmm. None of them do. The Scots have their editions, so a lot of people in Wales read the news that is wrong, as far as they're concerned. But they were fed this Eurosceptic diet. I had it all the time on the doorstep. But look, most people said to me, look, we're going to vote out because we want to kick David Cameron. They just saw it as a battle between, within the Tory party. The other issue that people really uh, got annoyed about was globalisation. Didn't call it that, but they'd say, look, my father was underground or in the steelworks. It was hard work, but it was good money. There was a pension at the end of it. It was secure, and there was union recognition. I haven't got any of those things. I don't care who's to blame for it. This is my opportunity to register my discontent. And a lot of those people said to me, but don't worry, we'll be voting Labour. They weren't, it, it wasn't a pathway to voting Conservative in Wales at all. We saw that in the last general election. So there were so many factors at play in that Brexit referendum that, and few of them had anything to do with Europe. Uh, you've also got a, a, a sort of small UKIP group in the... In the I'm getting smaller. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Neil Hamilton is now yes, a, he, a, is a member of the Welsh Assembly. He, yes, he is, yeah. Is he, he a formidable is. opponent? Uh, he's, um, well, with his background, he's very different. Remember, we've got seven, we've got seven UKIP members, none of whom were elected first past the post. They all got there uh, through PR yeah. and the particular PR system that we have. There were seven of them, there are no four. So three of them have, uh, two of them have, have left uh, the group. One of them's sort of kind of joined the Conservatives, Mark Reckless, but isn't actually a member of the Conservatives. And there are, there are four of them left. And um, they've had one, two, three, four leaders in that time. So it's, it's in a fair place. It's pretty egalitarian and democratic. <laughs> you know? Everyone gets a go at, uh, at being leader. But, you know, they're just, as a group, they've fallen apart completely. They have, as you say, they've pretty much halved uh, as a group. Because there was a period where you talked to UKIP figures and they were all heading to Wales, like Mark Reckless. You know, these were former Conservative MPs. You've got Neil Hamilton, who's a Conservative yeah. minister. They saw Wales as, a, as an incubator for UKIP, but you managed to drive them back. Yeah. Do you think that the referendum killed them off as it did in the rest of the UK or there, are there specific factors in Wales where Labour was able to defeat UKIP? No, people, people have moved on. Uh, they don't see UKIP as the kind of protest vote that they did in the past. A lot of those voters came back and voted Labour. Some of them voted Conservative, we know that. Some of them went back and voted Plaid. You know, we, people don't vote along logical lines. Sometimes we think, well, if somebody is going to vote Labour, they're never going to vote UKIP. or never, Well, they will. You know, how many times have I seen in council elections where people vote Labour and Conservative? Uh, on the same ballot paper, for, you know, for in a dual member seat. Uh, but UKIP have gone backwards. They don't have a single elected councillor in Wales. Uh, a lot of the fuel has disappeared. Um, you know, they've spent a lot of their time fighting each other. Uh, and I say there are four of them left. So who knows? They'd be maybe even fewer by next week. <laughs> in terms of uh, the assembly, I've been to first minister's questions uh, at uh, at the uh, the Senate. Is that if I pronounce that right? Senate. As in, the, as in the, it's yeah. a beautiful building with the, yeah. with the engraving on the side and stuff like that. Do you? I mean, and you said that you you miss it. Do you think it is um, correct and effective to have it in that sort of European style, like the Scottish Parliament in in the circular, or would you rather have a, a sort of House of Commons style adversarial? It is style. adversarial. But in uh, terms you know, of the not, design of the house, yeah. But most you know most chambers aren't like that. I mean, most council chambers aren't like that. Um, it, it's pretty adversarial as it is, no question about that. I mean, we, we're all sitting groups in any event. Mm. Uh, and I miss questions, you know, I, it, they're hard work, they're testing, they're tough, it's been, you know, times have been really, really difficult. But to be able to stand up 
uh, for three quarters of an hour every week. You know, I enjoy it. That's 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 a really important part of the job, and it's the you know the the, the jousting, the theatre that goes with it. Because sometimes it's really difficult, you know, and it, it needs to be that way. But uh, it's an important part of democracy. In terms of the future of devolution with Wales, obviously the Labour Party supports a United Kingdom. Mm. When people talk about a federal United Kingdom, and obviously this is largely in response to the politics that are happening in Scotland, not so much in Wales, but in terms of how many, how many powers can be devolved to a member mm. nation without it being independence, how far do you think that can go? Well, for us, the, the, the one thing that's missing at the moment, one big thing, is justice. Uh, we have this really strange system where a lot of the services that are provided on the justice system are ours, but the justice system, the police aren't. Whereas the Scots, of course, in Northern Ireland, they do control their, their own justice system. That, it's a big uh, contradiction for me at the moment. Um, the Scots are one or two other things that, that, that we don't have, but the problem is we look at devolution purely in terms of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. No one talks about England at all. No one says what we want is a devolution settlement for the UK. Yes. It's all about well, what can we give Scotland, what can we give Wales. And the problem you've got with the federal UK is England. It's so big that you, what do you do? You have an English parliament? Do you have English regions? We know that's not popular yeah. uh, or hasn't been in the past. So England is, is the difficulty. How do you resolve a situation where you've got a UK government that's also the English government at the same time? Uh, and how do you give England representation? England's the only country without its own parliament. It is. I mean, that is, it, it's a particular problem, isn't it, for, for sort of liberal left types, this sort of problem? The Tories are slightly more at ease with it as long as it works for them electorally. But the Labour Party doesn't seem to have a view of what England is. Is this something you've ever talked to Jeremy Corbyn about? It, but but it, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? What, what do you do with England? How do you ensure that England's voice is heard, um, given the fact there's no English Parliament, there's no English government? It's a tough one. From my perspective, we just need to, to, to reinvent the UK. You know, we, we can't carry on as we are. We've seen with Brexit the real problems that we've got now where... You know, the UK government say to us, well, what we need now, of course, is to uh, have the powers come back from Brussels and we'll have them all. Uh, and we'll decide whether or not you get them. Well, we said, you forget that, forget us all years. Uh, now we have an agreement with them on what, on what goes where. Because you know, I mean, we, we need to have some rules. We don't have a completely rule-free uh, UK. Otherwise, you just end up with the internal single market of the UK disappearing. So with agricultural subsidies, you need to make sure that people play with the same set of common rules, otherwise the biggest wins. Whoever's got most money wins, and that's not us. But all this is new for the UK. You know, when the UK joined the EU, there was one government in the UK, you know, now there are three, hopefully four, in the future. And that means the UK's got to change. I've always said that Brexit carries with it the seed of the UK's own destruction. If it's handled badly, the Scots will say, well, you know, we've had enough of this, we're off. You know, people in Wales are not immune to that kind of thinking. We're nowhere close to that in terms of independence. That's, that, that's true. But this is a strange world that we live in. So unless, it's done, unless the UK handles Brexit properly internally, the UK itself is, is you know, there is a danger the UK might break up. In terms of the history of, of, of uh, Wales's relationship with the UK, and particularly with, within the Labour Party, Nye Bevan, who's this, this, this great Labour figure, the founder of the NHS, himself was always slightly sceptical of, of devolution at he all, was. wasn't he? He said that a Westmoreland sheep is no different to a, to a Scottish sheep to, a, to an English sheep. Yeah, it's not quite right, actually. Someone who was a rural affairs minister for a long time, but... Uh, <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> he, he didn't. I mean, but that, that was... At the time, look, the, the thinking at the time was, after the war, we want social change. The British state is the engine of social change. Anything else is a distraction from that. That's what, what a lot of people who were strong socialists felt. Uh, then we had the Thatcher years, that all started to change. People said, well, hang on a second, the British state no longer delivers you know, steel, coal, all the nationalised industries, so actually 
uh, it's not the engine that it once was. So we can now look at devolution in a way that we didn't before. That, that, that's, what, that's what happened. You know, the, remember, Wales was never a state, apart from for three years between 1400 and 1403, which I don't really remember that well. <laughs> Scotland was. Scotland was. You know, Wales was just warring principalities uh, for, for much of its history. So we never had that sense of statehood. What kept Welsh identity going was the language through the 19th century and, the tw and then sport. You know, having a separate rugby and football team helped to keep identity going in a way that Scotland, you know, we didn't have a, our legal system disappeared in 1536, our currency disappeared in 1908. Uh, we didn't have the kind of <coughs> symbols of statehood that the Scots had. So that's had to be, in some ways, you know, built over a number of decades. In terms of sport, just two summers ago, Wales had a phenomenal Euro 2016. Yeah. Did you manage to get to any of the games? And how, how difficult is it as, as the leader of a country to try and wrap yourself in that success, but also not be seen to be capitalising on it too? Shameless. <laughs> Shameless. I mean, the thing is now, what, we find, what I find now is I go to countries around the world, uh, you know, football-playing countries, and they say, where are you from? Wales. And I say, Wales, Gareth Bale. And they know straight away where I'm from. But it did wonders for us in terms of, our, you know, there's a limit to what you can do as a politician. If you've got sporting success, the platform is so much bigger. I was there. Oh, I was there in the England game. That was that was difficult because I think they scored right at the end. Oh, two late goals, Vardy. Yeah, started. that was. Yeah, thanks for that. And um, <laughs> but the quarter final against Belgium. I was there for oh, that. That right. was just phenomenal. That was phenomenal. I mean, what a night that was. And uh, okay, we ran out of steam in the end. It's going to happen with a small country, but uh, it was a tremendous journey. You know, people really. You know, we're, we're only three million. We can put it a decent uh, football team. Put it a decent rugby team. You know, it's, it's it's not a bad record for a country that small. In terms of what it did for the Welsh identity, do you, do you think it gave... Because a lot has been talked about the English identity in the wake of, of this summer, really, and how it gave a positive, diverse view of Englishness that was yeah. uh, perhaps lacking for quite some time. What, how does the Welsh, apart from the fact that obviously it exists within the borders of Wales, what is the Welsh national identity? Well, the problem we had with, with the World Cup was there was just nothing to dislike about the England team. Yeah, they were, they were just, just well-behaved, nice lads with, with a really, you know, with a, with, a, with a decent manager. You know, you couldn't dislike anything about them. It was really difficult for us. Uh, but what is it? I mean, you you've got the language, but the language is spoken by between five and seven hundred and seven hundred thousand people. Most people in Wales don't speak Welsh, so you can't say, well, the language is the sole uh, definition of identity. Although yeah. most people are proud of it and supportive of it, uh, a lot of it has grown up since the sixties. You know, a sense of political identity grew up and in, in the midst of the Thatcher years. That's when the political identity really started. Uh, before that, it wasn't really there in the, in the same way. It was more cultural, more to do with the language. But we have a civic identity now. Yeah, we've seen it. In 1997, the devolution referendum was really close. Yeah. You know, but it was a yes vote. In 2011, we had a vote on greater powers. We won that two to one. And that gives you an idea of how, how Wales has changed. There's a lot more confidence now uh, in the nation. Look, like I said, with three million people... Uh, we've had the Ryder Cup, we've had the Champions League. You know, the, the, these are big events that we managed to, uh, to host. We'd never have done that 20 years ago. It would, be, it would have been impossible. And it's really important when you've got a lot of competitors on the world stage that you, you, know, you shout as loud as you can. One thing that I think divine, defines Welshness culturally mm. is a phenomenal sense of humour based largely in nicknames. People have these incredible nicknames in Wales. Yeah. That, that England and Scotland and Northern Ireland don't have. And obviously there's a lot of banter that people yeah. do have in their communities, but there's something specific about the way the Welsh talk to each other and the nicknames they give each other. Where, where does that tradition come from? Uh, so many people have got the same surname. <laughs> you know, th th there are five or six surnames. <laughs> Jones. That, uh, yeah, I mean, 5% of the population is Jones. 
uh, alone. Uh, so, so the, rea the reality is you had to find a nickname to, to, for people to, to work at who they are. You know, there's some people that I knew through my life, I have no idea what their real names were. <laughs> there was a man in my parents' village who everyone called Stalin. I have no idea <laughs> what his real name was. I'm going to Stalin because he looked like Stalin. That's what they called. And the one, you're going back to what you said earlier on about fake news. I mean, of course, in Wales, we say noose and news, different pronunciations. But the one we have difficulty with is that, you know, there was a person in, again, my parents' home village whose nickname was Die Six Months because he had half a year. <laughs> See? Now, if you're Welsh, if you're Welsh, ear and year are pronounced the same way. <laughs> this is a year, right? But you've got to explain that to an audience outside of South Wales. <laughs> they don't follow. But die six months at half a year. <laughs> is, it, is it such a cool thing to have? Like, all my Welsh mates have, like, they will talk about the nicknames that they, their friends had at school and stuff like that. I don't know any other part of the UK that has that. And it comes predominantly just because Jones is a, is yeah. a popular Look, my, my first name is unusual, right? It's not ridiculously unusual, but it's still quite unusual. I, I sh the problem is I share the same name as a very famous rugby coach, but he was Carrying James. So for years, I'd be called Carrying James. So I, I, so I just got used to, used to that. Now he's been dead for 35 years, so really it's getting a bit wearing now. Uh, and um, it, it took me a few years to actually get called Jones rather than James. But everybody knows me. If you look at the papers, it's always my first name they use. The same with Rodri, my, uh, my predecessor. He was always called by his first name. Because, you know, Jones has said this. Well, you know, which one of hundreds of thousands of these people <laughs> has actually made this comment? So I, I never got a nickname because my own first name was so unusual. You mentioned Rodri there, Rodri Morgan, who is yeah. a, a, a towering figure in Labour Party politics and, and particularly towering in Scotland, in, in Wales. So I was going to say, <laughs> the, yeah. uh, he probably was when he visited, I'm sure. Yeah. But he's, uh, what was the point I was going to make was he's kind of the Donald Dewar of, of Wales, isn't he? He's the, yeah. he's, the, he's, the, he's the man who delivered devolution to Wales. And at the time was, was controversial because he was someone that the London-based Labour Party, the UK Labour Party, did not want, and their favourite was, was Alan Michael, the former yeah. uh, Secretary of State. That was one of the early rows of the Blair government, mm, was, was. was the difference between what the Welsh Labour Party wanted and what the Labour Party wanted the Welsh Labour Party to want. Yeah, yeah. In terms of that debate, what, what side of it were you on? Well, I, I back Rodri. Alan, I have to say, is something I've got to know over the years, and he's great. It just wasn't a job for him. You know, he, he, was, he used to worry so much about it, and... Uh, you know, it wasn't the right job for him. Uh, he's, you know, he's an incredible dynamo. He's got incredible energy. He's got six kids, uh, lots of grandchildren. <laughs> he's still, you know, he's, a, he's a police commissioner. He doesn't stop, Alan. You know, he, he really is incredible in that way. Rodri was very different. I mean, Rodri, you know, he was an incredibly clever guy. Harvard, Oxford. If, if he met you, he'd remember your name straight away and remember it for years. I don't know how he did it. Jones. Yeah, but he's <laughs> so Jones, yeah. Uh, Jones, Thomas, Davis, Evans, uh, whatever, whatever you are. Whatever you call you. And, um... He's been good at it, but he had the, you know, he cultivated this persona of, you know, the, the, the sort of slightly um, dishevelled academic, but he wasn't. You know, he was incredibly sharp, uh, and that's, you know, the, the, for me, to be able to follow him into the job, because he, he, he was a year younger than my own father. Uh, so he was, in, in many ways, you know, my father figure in politics, uh, and I, you know, learned a lot from him. And when I heard, because when he died, I'd been doing a leaders' debate uh, outside of Cardiff, I thought it had gone pretty well. And I came off the stage, and um, my media spat, he was here this evening, looked at me, and his face was, was thunder, and I thought, what, what the hell have I said? You know, I thought it had gone well. Then he said, come into this room with me now. And I thought, God, what have I said? And then, of course, he told me that, that Rodri had died, and, and it was literally stood after, the, um, after that debate. 
Do you often uh, get told off for your special advisors after speeches? Oh, all the time. Look, the, fir the first dispute we well, the first big dispute we had was over the beard, right? That went really. I was told by Hugh has a beard, incidentally, <laughs> yeah, to for... shave it off. I said, "What are you got a beard? Yeah, but I'm not first minister." But uh, but no, look, we, we're a good team. We're a good team. They know that they can say things to me. I hope, and you know, I, I'm never, I don't get annoyed at, at, uh, at what they say because the, what, what the advice they give me is good advice. Uh, so one of the things I'll miss when I go in five weeks and six days uh, from this very date. Uh, is the team around me, because they've been fantastic. I mean, you, you mentioned the speech earlier on. I mean, my speechwriter, Matt, is also here this evening. Brilliant. He's a really good speechwriter. And sometimes you have to have somebody who understands the way you speak mm. and understands the emphasis you put uh, on certain words in a speech, and he's got it to a T. You know, I've never had a better speechwriter. So uh, I'll miss that team. I'll miss that team when I leave. How, how would you describe your leadership style? Style? God, I'm the worst person to, to, uh, to say that. I... I like to give people the space to think and to breathe as ministers. I don't want to interfere too much in what they do, but there comes a point where you've got to, you've got to take the decision based on what's in front of you that, that means you know, you've got to impose discipline. You can't be you know, too lackadaisical. There comes a point where you feel that the, the line's been uh, breached, you have to take action, I've had to, and I've had to do that uh, over the years. And have you developed that style, or is that something that you brought on, on day one of being first minister? Well, I, I probably developed it because you know before that I was a minister and doing various things. Before that I was self-employed. I was a barrister, being you know shouted at in court. I tell you what, shouted at in court every day. It was good, it was good uh, you know good training for you because it was never as difficult. This job was never as difficult as court was when I when I first started. Uh, and I think you have to. You don't know what you're like as a manager. You know you have to draw on what you bring into the job and and try and act with a bit of common sense. And do you read books on leadership and, and look to arenas like sport and, and business for inspiration? Do you read, you know, Branson's autobiography on holiday and stuff like that? No, I read uh, sport leadership, interests me, because, you know, I, 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 there are two things I admire, right, more than anything else. Uh, political leadership, well, I'm part of that, so I, I don't sort of see it in the same way, but um, sports leadership and, and the way that people, especially football managers, I mean, what a high-pressure job. It's worse than this in some ways. You know, how do they manage it? Alex Ferguson, I asked him, I said, look, how, how have you stayed in this job uh, so long? And he said, well, look, I, it's just I enjoy it so much. And then, um, so you've you got sports leadership. I think that's, that's you know, something I, I, I read a lot about. Uh, and also the kind of uh, leadership you get uh, in schools. You know, how do people manage at that level? I think that's where we can, uh, we can learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some transferable skills, perhaps. Um, because it, is, it seems, particularly in politics, that leadership isn't something that we talk about enough within politics, that there isn't enough emphasis on the skills of... Oh, to be fair, actually, in wider society, people end up being managers of teams because they've been there the longest or they're good at a particular job, but management itself is a skill that not necessarily the most talented... Yeah, but there are different, types, there are different types of management. You can't manage a government uh, like you manage a business. Mm. I mean, you haven't got shareholders as such. You're not there to turn. You know, people say, "Well, we need a bit more." You know, people we need more people with, with business heads in the NHS. But the NHS is not a business. It's not there to turn into a pro turn a profit. It's there to provide a service. It's not the same skill. And of course, if you're in uh, if you run your own company, you can you know you, you can dictate in a way that doesn't happen in politics. You have to take people with you, even if you're the first minister. You've got to take your, your colleagues with you. That's important. So it's a far more consensual form of leadership. If you if you if you appear to be too distant or too dictatorial, you won't last. Well, that's it. How do you, so that, that's, firstly, there's the awareness that you, you realise that. Secondly, there's then putting that into practice. So do you have 
Um, and I know council leaders, members of parliament, and, and other leaders that have done this. Do you, do you have times in the diary where you would deliberately, you know, connect with people and make sure that you spend X amount of time either meeting the public or talking with colleagues and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the there are two things you've got to do. First of all, never forget where you're from. Now, I'm lucky. You know, I live 20 miles away from Cardiff. I'm home most nights. You know, I can wander around the town where I, where I live and you know chat away to people. It's easy, and you never forget that. You've got to be approachable. But, but also I think it's important um, that you don't take criticism from people who are critical friends too personally. So every week, first minister's questions that happens one on a Tuesday afternoon, finishes quarter past two, I sit down with five people and I say, okay, how did it go? You know, I need to have, you know, did this work, did that work, did that work? And they will tell me straight whether they think something worked or whether it didn't work. And you've got to have, having that feedback every week is key to honing your skills as somebody who's answering questions. In terms of assessing your own style, then, what would you say, in, in terms of the things you get told off for by your team, what are your, what are your worst habits? <laughs> I'm grumpy in the morning. <laughs> yeah, let's face it, I'm I can come in sometimes and I think, oh, you know, all, this, all these things. I get better as the day goes on. Yeah. I know this. I know I'm like this. And I think also when you're on your feet in the chamber, you have to make sure you don't lose your temper. Mm. You know, because you can. You know, you can be accused of all manner of things, and, you, and your initial reaction is to really push back and really fight, and you can't do that. You know, this is why I don't get involved in Twitter spats. You know, yeah, what's the point? You just get involved in an argument with somebody who's, you know, usually sitting in a room at five o'clock uh, waiting for their mum to come for tea. I mean, what's the point? And yeah, but she you, cooks you've got, you've got to, yeah, but you've got to, yeah, you've got to, you've got to rise above it. You know, get involved in battles that are worth having, not endless disputes about nothing. Yeah, but I completely agree. But so many people can't or don't manage yeah, to, don't to live it, yeah. by that rule. Have you, have you ever, I mean, over the years, you must have been provoked on the doorstep or in the street. Have you ever lost your rag with a voter? No. Not once? Not once, no. You can just, you just nod at them and, and walk off. You know, it's just, um, <laughs> but look, the, the, way, the way I do it is, if, if I'm canvassing, the last thing you do is to go straight to the point and say, who do you vote for? You know, I've had people, younger people particularly, who will say, first of all, they'll address the voter by the first name. Don't do that. And secondly, I'm from the Labour Party, do you vote Labour? Not, not that. The first thing you've got to do is to make conversation about something else. So if it's a, good, a nice garden there, say, oh, I, I like that camellia and all the rest of it. And they say, oh, I drained you. No, what? Yeah, you know what I mean, it's a plant. And um, if there's a dog, you know, it doesn't matter if the dog is, is frothing at the mouth. You say, oh, it's a lovely dog. <laughs> lovely dog, you know. Because it connects with people. It makes you look normal. And then... What I'll say to people is, because you, know, you introduce themselves, and they say, well, I know who you are. I say, well, listen, would you normally see yourself as a Labour voter, do you think? Now, normally they'll say, yes, absolutely. OK, you know who they're going to vote. So, uh, sometimes they'll say, well, no, I'm not. The next question then is, well, are you thinking of voting Labour this time around? Now, if the answer to that is no, you've, you've managed to get the information you need, you've been polite about it, and they'll remember that. Rather than saying, hello, I'm from, I'm from the Labour Party, do you vote Labour? Edith, or whatever, whatever name you want to give to the person. And I think that one of the problems I have with politics now, there'll be people in this room who are not going to like what I'm going to say when I say this, there are too many people coming into politics who've done nothing else. Really, if you do a politics degree, you then go and work for a political party and you've got no other experience, you're not ready to stand for election. You've got to do something else outside of politics and bring that experience with you, preferably a job that involves listening to people and being able to communicate with people at their level. Uh, and that... You know, I, I spent time in the criminal law. Now, I went to the primary school in a very working-class um, village. I then spent 10 years basically as a criminal barrister, and you had to 
people had to know that you knew what they were saying. You had to tell them, you know, what was, what was going on. They were often frightened, often bewildered. Listen, learn to listen. That's the important thing. And politics isn't about gossip. It isn't about Twitter. It isn't about, you know, having a go with people on Facebook. It's about listening to people and sorting out their problems. If you can't do that, don't be in politics. Because it does feel, and I completely agree, and I think most people, I'm, I'm sure most people in the room would agree, and most people who listen to this will, and certainly that's how we would want it to be. But it does feel as if though politics is becoming particularly toxic, and that online environment that's abusive is spilling over into the real world, and that we're talking to each other in quite a nasty way, and whether it's on television or whether it's on the radio or even, or even face-to-face. Have you noticed, whether it's pre-Brexit or post, but say the last five years that people are more disrespectful even on the doorstep? No, not face-to-face. But people will say things on social media they wouldn't dare say to your face. Yeah. You know, that's the difference. Yeah, people become really, really nasty online, no question about that. Facebook, tw- you know, Twitter, but, you know, particularly Facebook. That's the worst one of all. Uh, the amount of abuse that some politicians have taken. But you don't get it in the doorstep in the same way because people you know, don't say it to your face. They're in double standards here, but they won't say it to your face. So I've, I've not seen in the past few years politics at a face-to-face level, get any more difficult. But it's got a lot more difficult on social media. Because people can hide on social media. They'll hide as trolls. They're never going to have that face-to-face contact. They're never going to have to stand up to somebody and say, you know, this is what I think of you. Uh, They won't do it. So they hide. It's cowardice. So do you you mute people? Do you block them? How do you deal with it? Uh, People hate being ignored more than they hate being argued with. So just ignore them. And that, that goes straight. But it seems then like they start saying, have you, had, have you had my comment? You know that as well. <laughs> you know, that, that works. But if you get involved, they want a fight. If you yeah, just ignore yeah. them, they, they, that annoys them even more and eventually they go away. But is there anything anyone has ever said to you that's offended you? Have you ever come close oh, to it? Every day <laughs> this happens, yeah. But, you know, you've just got to rise above it. You can't, you can't when, you, you, when you're first minister, you can't get involved in Twitter spats every single day. You know, people, leaders don't, well, hang on, America. But leaders, <laughs> all right, with one exception, you just don't do that. No. That's what people want. They want to get that kind of reaction out of you. They want to think, I have told him exactly what I think about him, and he's responded. If you don't respond, they don't get that satisfaction. It neutralises it. Yeah. If you've got a genuine, a genuine problem, they'll email you in the constituency office. They'll come to the constituency office if they've got a genuine problem. Uh, they, won't, they won't, as a rule, put it out on Twitter. So, you know, I, that's the way I've always done it. I mean, y- your reaction, you know, for me, someone hits you hitting back, but you can't do that when you're first minister. You've got to rise above it. What about, because there's, there's the general public, but then there's also the changes within the party. Do you, what's your relationship like with your, your local momentum branch? We haven't got one. Haven't got momentum any? branch, no. Well, you've got any momentum? You must yeah, yeah there'll be, there be some people who'll be momentum supporters, but we don't have a, there's no branch. In, well, no one's told me yet. Anyway, and are they, but, uh, are, they, are, they, are they? Is that because they're less well organised in, in in Wales, um, or, I, I think or less they, present? They, they, they have different. I mean, different strengths in different parts of Wales. You know, um, I, I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm always wary of organisations within organisations, and that would be momentum. It could be uh, prospect, anything like that. I'm always a little bit wary. We're one party at the end of the day. We've always been a broad, broad uh, umbrella of a party. We've always had very different views within that party. You know, our enemy is not ourselves. We are there. We're not there to argue with each other. We're not there to score points of each other. We're there to deliver for the people who need us to deliver for them. That's what we're there for, to win elections, get a Labour government elected in London, from my perspective, obviously, in order to make people's lives better. That's what's important. Uh, anything else is a distraction. But do, do you get called a Blairite much? No. Not at all? No, 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 no. no. Well, I, I, you know, 
these labels don't mean anything to me. I mean, the, the, all my time I've been leader of Welsh Labour, I've had people of different views uh, within the party, and we've always made sure those views have been accommodated in the policies we've produced. We've never had that kind of division that exists up here. But then there are so few of us. You know, you can't... Well, there are 29 of you. It's quite difficult to, to create you know, 29 different fractions uh, within, one, within one group. And we all know that we can't afford, as, as a group, so we all know each other pretty well personally, we can't afford to have that kind of division. How would you, you, you get Blairism, you get Corbynism, what is Jonesism? <laughs> Does it exist? Well, look, for me, it was always about going after and representing those people who have a strong Welsh identity, whose politics are of the centre-left, and who will vote for Plaid Cymru if they feel that no other party will, will represent them. And for me, that was a really important thing to do. Uh, also to show that we had our own autonomous voice within Welsh Labour, which we do, we've got, you know, one of the policies, probably our flagship policy, is on organ donation, where, of course, in Wales you have to opt out, not, uh, not opt in, you know, and to show that we can do things that don't just affect our people, but can be an example elsewhere in the UK. And, you know, vice versa, we shouldn't be too afraid to learn from other examples in the UK. We're not, you know, we've got a monopoly on wisdom, you heard it here first. And <laughs> that's what Welsh Labour's about. It's not, it's not an alternative to UK Labour. It's part of the Labour family, but with a particular Welsh identity. And in terms of your relationship with the Labour family then, with, with the leader Jeremy Corbyn, does he respect the autonomy of, of Welsh Labour or do you feel like a branch office? No, I don't. I mean, I was with him this afternoon, actually. Um, you should have brought him down. Well, I, I get to be, I've got to say, I've got, I get him very well with him. I get him very well, you know, we, our politics might be very different in, in, in some instances, but... Is that I, what the beard's I've, about? Is that building a bridge? Yeah, I'll tell you what, right, <laughs> the problem was, I first grew this beard uh, at the time when he stood against Owen, Owen Smith. <laughs> Uh, for the election, I came back with a beard. My wife said, look, if you keep that beard, people will think that, that you're doing it to join some kind of cult. <laughs> so I said, well, that beard, the beard's going to come off. But uh, I thought, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anymore. But the, I get on very well with him. You know, I, Probably the best relationship in terms of one-to-one -one that I've had with another, another Labour leader, I've got to say, in terms of being able to talk uh, and be able to, to, to find time to meet with him. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, it's, been, it's been pretty good. I mean, there are always tensions between, you know, different offices in, in London and Cardiff, but you know, nothing, there's been nothing dif really difficult, which we, you know, we've had that in the past, but there's been nothing really difficult. So you have a better relationship with Corbyn than you did with Blair? Well, I wasn't First Minister, you see, when Blair was uh, Prime Minister. I came in, Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. Uh, I got on well with Gordon, but you know, Gordon's, I only met him once in the time I was First Minister because it was only three months that he was uh, leader. And, you know, Gordon was, you know, I remember when Gordon left office, he wrote me a letter thanking me, which I thought was a really... Really nice touch. Um, Did you read it? And he's, yeah. Uh, no, uh, and, um, well, it was more about how legible his handwriting was. Uh, that, that, you haven't seen mine. You haven't <laughs> seen my handwriting. And uh, he's kept in touch. Uh, now and again, Gordon, and I, I appreciate that. Ed, I'm not sort of ever through his, so I don't know what he's uh, what he's doing. But uh, yeah, there's never been uh, there's never been somebody who I didn't get on with. Um, but I've probably spoken more at a personal level to Jeremy than I have with anyone else. And is that, do you, do you think, a reflection of, of his personal style, of, of him as a person, or is that a, a reflection of he recognising the, the politics of the Union and, and specifically Wales? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. He's, he's actually quite, you know, he's quite personable, one-to-one. -one. I didn't know him at all uh, when, I, uh, when he got elected. You, know, and you had this impression of somebody who was a really sort of stern, hard left, and, and he wasn't like that. And um, I say that there, there are some issues where we, you know, we would have different views, but that's natural within the, uh, within the party. But in terms of being able to talk to him, sit down, chat, I've got to say that's, that's worked really well. 
And is it is it all business? Do you only talk about politics? No, we talk, we don't. I, I, we sometimes talk about family in a way that I didn't with others. Um, talk about family. He asks after my family how they're doing. Takes an interest, in, and we chat away about other things uh, as well. It's not just, and that helps to create the kind of relationship that you need. Uh, if you just talk about politics all the time, you never get to know the person behind the the, the commentary. I mean, Theresa May is a fine example of that. Theresa May is the same in private as she is in public. You know, you can sit with Theresa May and say, "Well, so Theresa, how are you?" Uh, Brexit means Brexit. I mean, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> I, but I'm not exaggerating by much, by a lot. Um, you know, you had a problem with the throat. Sorry, no, sorry, but you had throat problem. You gave that speech. Uh, well, you know, no deals better than a bad deal. <laughs> she, she's quite difficult to talk to. You know, because you try to make small talk with people. You know, chat away, ask about family and so on. You know, Cameron ask about him and the kids doing all the rest of it. But it, it, she's not like that. She's very, very set on. This is the meeting. This is the agenda. This is what I'm talking about. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How difficult is it when you are um, the leader of, of, of Wales, but you want to stay in the UK, but you're having to deal with a Tory Prime Minister? Well, you learn to do these things. I mean, I, I had a Labour Prime Minister for three months. And then all the, rest, all the rest of the time, I've had Tory prime ministers. Uh, you, you know, there's rivalry. You will score points off each other. Of course, you will politically. Um, but you just have to get on with the job. I mean, you've got you know, Nicola as an SNP first minister in Scotland. You had Arlene in Northern Ireland. Uh, Martin, when he was there, we were all in different parties. Uh, but you had to find a way to get on. Uh, and you know, the, the system we have at the moment where we meet every year doesn't work because all we do is basically complain about each other and that, that's not what you want. You want something that's going to be a forum where people can take decisions. Uh, and that's what we need in the UK in the future. So, yeah, we, we're in a position now where we've got leaders from you know, different parties and we just have to, you know, the public are, are going to say to us, you know, okay, you're in different parties, but we expect you to get on and work together where you can and you've just got to bear that in mind. So when uh, Cameron was Prime Minister, quite apart from the Brexit referendum, uh, NATO came to Wales yep. and Obama came to Wales. He did, yeah. And you welcomed him there. Um, was it in Newport that he... That it was, Kelty Manor in Newport, yeah. And did you, did you get to show uh, Barack around much of Newport? No. <laughs> Not no, at was, all? No, no, no. He was, he was, was corralled by Cameron. I mean, the, the thing that was quite funny is that I was accused of ignoring Cameron, you see, because I was standing there and the cavalcade turned, uh, turned up and out comes Obama. Now, walks towards me and I shook his hand. Now, unknown to me, David Cameron was there and I didn't see him. And he did this. And what he actually said was, and this is Carolyn Jones, the First Minister of Wales. But he looked as if he was offering me his hand and I was just ignoring him, uh, which I wasn't. Uh, and, but of course, you know, if you've got the President of the USA in front of you, you could have the Grim Reaper standing next to you and you wouldn't notice. Uh, but no, he, he, he escorted uh, Obama around. So you didn't get much time with Obama? A little bit, but not a huge amount. No. And did he, was he sort of attuned to the politics of Wales? No, no. <laughs> no, it was general chit-chat more than anything else. I mean, you, did, you didn't, the thing is, you don't spend much time with people. I, mean, I was, the strange thing about it was, we, um, I was there to greet all the delegations as they arrived. And we were given a list by the Foreign Office, this, this delegation arrived this time, then two minutes later this one, then two minutes later this one. 
none of it made sense. Right? <laughs> the, the people were coming, you know, the, the, these these cars were turning up, and he'd be told, right, this is the um, this, this is the Romanian delegation, and or this is the um, Albanian delegation, and I said, oh, well, you come from Albania? No, no, actually, no, not we're, we're from Spain. Well, they, they just they got it wrong, so they said, right, what we'll do now is we'll get a system where. Um, at the gate of the hotel, they'll radio through to tell us who's coming through. Fail safe, no problem at all. The car turns up. Um, right, this is the Norwegian delegation. And out of the car come three men dressed in full Arab clothing. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I, I'm sure Norway's multicultural. This is all a bit, of course, it wasn't Norway, was it? They got, they got all that wrong. But, it, but it, was, it was a great event for us to host. It really was, to have that kind of, you know, people loved it. To have that kind of, um, you know, exposure was great for us. Uh, a big problem at the moment, I imagine, from your point of view and from Wales's, um, the Welsh Labour's point of view, is Brexit. And mm. that is tensions not just within the union, but within the party. Because the UK leadership uh, is perhaps less than vocal on Brexit than, than people would like it to be, and perhaps more less vocal than you would like it to be. Is it something you talk to Corbyn about? And do you get a sense that he will stop Brexit if he can? No, I think there's, there's a reluctance which I understand, actually, not to appear to be too gung-ho for a second referendum. And I understand that, and I agree with it, and I'll explain why. I think if you appear to be too gung-ho for a second referendum, uh, there'll be some people who sit in the middle who will say, well, hang on a second, we had one two years ago, what, this is an attempt to turn, turn the uh, vote the other way. Mm. The other problem I have is that in 1997, when devolution was established in Wales after a referendum with a similar result, some people said the Tories for eight years had a policy of a second referendum. I've forgotten that, but that was their policy. And I said, well, we've had the referendum. Yes, it was close, but we've had the referendum. We don't need a second referendum. Now, I can hardly turn around now and argue the opposite because it suits me. So my view is, is simply this. Look, if there's no deal that's agreed on in Parliament, I'd say all, all the parliaments of the UK, how do you resolve it? It has to be a general election. You know, Brexit would be the issue, wouldn't it? If the result of that election is inconclusive, then you have to have a referendum. How can you solve it uh, without going back to the very same people who took the decision in the first place? But you can genuinely say, look, we've tried other ways of getting to, the, to, a, you know, to an acceptable deal. We're not there. Now's your chance to have your view on it. And I think at that point, you can justify the second referendum. That's, and that's Labour policy, isn't it? That's what Emily Thornberry would say, is we want an election and not a referendum. Yeah. But there is a sense, isn't there, that because this was the result of a referendum, that if the parliamentary arithmetic does not exist for any particular deal, that it's more democratically legitimate to go back to the people in a referendum? I think what you've got to look at is what would the question be? Do you have a multi-question referendum where you the, say... Look, a referendum on the deal rather yeah, than a do, Is it deal or no deal? <laughs> or is it deal or no deal or remain? Yeah. And that's tough. What happens if it, it splits three ways? It's a, it's a really difficult one. I actually think an election gives you a better opportunity for parties to say, look, this is our plan, vote for this plan. Because the problem we had two years ago is that the referendum wasn't about a plan, it was about an idea. Yeah. Now, when we had our referendums in Wales, the 97 one, the 2011 one on further powers, if, if you wanted to, you could look at a document that told you what would happen if you voted yes. Well, then that was Brexit. There was no document that said, look, if you, if you vote to, 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 to leave, this is what will happen. You know, the reality is that we won't get £350 million a week or whatever they said for the NHS. The German car manufacturers are not going to step in and force the EU to come to a deal. That's the problem. There was no document. You know, the Scots, when they had their referendum, there was a white paper. that People could see, all right, it wasn't very clear. They didn't get the, the, the issue of the currency, right? But people could see, more or less, what would happen if Scotland became independent, more or less. We had none of that in the, in the EU referendum. 
So this is why we have this problem. You can look at that result and you can interpret it, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, no deal, it's fine, no problem at all. Or you can interpret it as I do, that people voted to leave the EU, but you can't say they want to leave the customs union because no one mentioned that. No one mentioned the single market because no one knew what it was on the doorstep. Yeah, and you can be out of the EU, but you can still have full access to the single market. You can still be in the customs union, and that's what I've been arguing for. I don't see a better alternative, I've got to say. But unfortunately, we've got this hardline view that says, now people voted to leave, you, you rat them. The European Medicines Agency, they didn't. Uh, and this is the problem with having a referendum on a vague question. People interpret it in any, any number of different ways. In terms of the way the UK is handling uh, the voices in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland uh, over Brexit, uh, there's been talk of a, of a power grab of the powers that coming back resigned in Westminster instead of going straight back to the Assembly or to, to the Scottish uh, Parliament and the Scottish Executive. How are, what's your view of the way that the UK are handling the politics of the union within Brexit? I think they've, they've, they've been brought to change their mind. I think if there was a Tory majority of over 100, they'd have run all over us. But the original plan was, whatever comes back from Brussels, we'll sit in Westminster and we will decide, even if it's an involved area, we'll decide when and if you devolved institutions get that power. We said, we're still not doing that. Uh, we got to the point then where we're in agreement with the UK government, which still holds, you know, that most of the powers will come to us. Uh, there are some that, we, that we'll put, all put in suspense, in suspension, because we all need to have a, a, a common view on them, like agriculture, fisheries. You know, this, you know, fisheries are all devolved in reality. The UK only exists in fisheries when it comes to international treaties. All the rest of it is ours. Uh, and that makes sense to have a you know, common approach to, 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 to those things. But the problem is, again, that the original plan was that ministers in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland in the future would be, would be stopped from doing things that ministers in England could. You know, so you could do anything you want in England, but Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, don't know, you, can't, you, you can't do the same thing. That was the unfairness. Uh, you know, there's been some progress, but we've got to have a, a situation where in the future... We've got something that looks like a council of ministers, the same way that exists in the EU, that operates at UK level, so we can take joint decisions, not Whitehall saying, this is the way it's going to be like you're all it. If that happens, there is a real danger in terms of the UK falling apart. In terms of information sharing and the diplomacy around Brexit, uh, how, how, how did Theresa May, Downing Street, the UK government, deal with you as First Minister of Wales? Do you feel that they uh, share adequately... Uh, the picture that's developing? Do you feel adequately consulted about the no. effects of Brexit on Wales? No, simple answer is no. We get a bit, but it's, 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 it's improved a bit. Uh, but the reality is, it depends which department you're talking about. The Home Office, don't tell anybody what's going on. Uh, other departments are better. You know, DEFRA usually are, are better because they're used to dealing with a devolved administration. But you know, they, they're reluctant to give us things in case we, you know, we, we end up giving the press, which we wouldn't do. You know, do that once, you're not going to get it again here. Mm. Um, and anyway, they do enough of that themselves. And without us, I'm going to do it. You know, so we get a bit, but there's not enough, really. Uh, you know, we, we've got an input we can we can make here, but they're just too. At the end of the day, they don't like thinking that we are we are and Scotland are on the same level as them. That's that's the ultimate problem. You know, Theresa May, I don't think, thinks that we are sort of partners when it comes to Brexit. We are subordinates, and the, the Whitehall thinking is. You know, we are the people in charge, and these people we've generously given power to, which we could take back at some point constitutionally, uh, are not our equals. So really, they, they've got no business in trying to tell us uh, what, what should happen in the UK. There is a, an inherent danger in that, as you say, for the survival of the United Kingdom as an entity. 
there's a mild frustration, there must be a mild frustration on your point, that, that you support the, the existence of the United Kingdom and want, to, want Wales to remain part of it, and yet the behaviour, obviously it's not your party, but yeah. a government that you would, could potentially be a, a pragmatic partner to, in some regard, in the sense that you, you both want to keep Wales in the United Kingdom, have been slightly alienated yeah. by... Yeah, but the, but the problem is, right, if you look at the UK, if you threaten independence, all of a sudden you get money thrown at you. If you've had 25 years of war in Northern Ireland, don't have a billion pounds on us, no problem. Uh, for us, because we don't advocate independence, oh, well, you know, maybe we don't have to listen so much to Wales, which is why we have to shout louder. You know, it's easy for Nicola in Scotland to stay, say, SNP First Minister, you know, we believe in Scottish independence. She gets news everywhere doing that. If I started doing the same for Wales, I'd be all over the news. But Five weeks I'm left. not a member of Ply Cymru, so you know, that's, that's my problem. Uh, and, but um, brinkmanship, you could, you could, in these last five weeks, threaten to take Wales out of the UK? Yeah, I think that would be a step too far in terms of brinkmanship. I think for, the first thing that would happen is my own party would disown me. <laughs> it doesn't really help. Uh, and that's, that's, the, you know, that's part of the issue. There's a real danger in... You know, the UK government can't create a situation where if you shout and threaten, you get things. Otherwise, you know, you know, the people of Wales will say, well, OK, what we'll do then? is we'll elect a party that's going to do that. Uh, and that's all right, not what I want, and that's not what they want. If you look at, I mean, I'll give you an example of the way the system works, right? We have a dispute resolution process. Sounds good. So if we have a dispute with the UK government, we have a dispute resolution process, and the dispute resolu resolution process is decided by the UK government. <laughs> when Northern Ireland got the billion pounds, some of which was for health and education, which should be barnetized, ourselves and the Scots said, hang on a second, you can't do that we're going to trigger the dispute resolution process within what's called the Joint Ministerial Council. And the response of the UK government was, well, you can't do that because we don't agree there is a dispute. That's what happened. There is no dispute. So there is no dispute. So there, there we are. So, you know, if you go to court, uh, if the other side don't accept there's a dispute, you can't do anything at all. Uh, it, it was that ridiculous, but that's where we are. So they said, no, no, we don't think there's a dispute here at all. But you, but you give money outside of Barnet to Northern Ireland. Oh, yeah, but so tough. So how often well, do you... Well, that, if that carries on, yeah, the UK is not going to prosper. No, uh, and that's true for all parts of the UK. Do you, in terms of, you obviously have a, a, an official relationship with the UK government on some level as First Minister of Wales with the Prime Minister. What's your relationship with Nicola Sturgeon like? Same. I mean, she, I'm a First Minister, she's a First Minister. It will, there are some things in which we'll agree, some things in which we'll disagree. You know, the constitutional journey for, for Nicola will be very different to the one I'd have uh, in mind, but there are lots of issues where we have to work together because, you know, by working together, we, we can, you know, we, we have a stronger voice. Uh, and we've done that on several occasions. So, yeah, the, 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 the working relationship is good. It has to be. You know, you, you can't just say, well, that person's in the SNP, I'm in Labour, my party are also in Scotland. You have to be able to develop a, that working relationship. And are there lessons you think, or, or, or indeed, have you learned anything from her? Because she's a particularly formidable politician and seen as one of the most capable, if not the most capable, in the UK and has obviously been given the opportunity to be in leaders' debates at a UK level. Mm. Obviously, we talked about the frustration that Plyde yeah. represented and you weren't, but other things you can learn from Nicola Sturgeon in terms of being a strong voice of a, of a, of a country within a union? Well, I'd argue that I am, uh, and we are a strong oh, voice. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's, 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 it's a question. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I mean, yeah, there are lots of journos in London who are Scots, right? They pick up things from Scotland in a way, you know, hey, well, he was blessed him, he does his best, but I mean, we don't have that, 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 that kind of critical mass. You know, Scotland has its own, its own vibrant press in a way that we don't have in Wales, and there's been a threat of independence. So people will take Scotland, or will notice what's happening in Scotland more perhaps than they would notice what's happening in Wales. Scotland's great um, <laughs> trick has been to appear far bigger than it actually is. Scotland's only five million people. Wales is only three million. You know, Wales is three million. We're not that much smaller than Scotland. 
But, you know, that's, if you want to get the headlines, fine, you know, demand independence. But if you want to get things done for people, you know, if you want to make sure that you're building new schools, if you are across Wales, you know, that's what counts as far as, as far as delivery is concerned. So what do you do? Get on with delivery or just say, let's demand independence. For me, it's get on with delivery. One area that definitely came under the microscope at a UK level was the NHS in Wales. And it was something that David Cameron continually tried to weaponise, particularly during the Miliband era, was this idea that, uh, well, Labour are in charge of the NHS in Wales uh, and it's a disaster. How frustrating was it to, to watch God. that every week? We used to, we used to give briefings all the time to Ed's office. They didn't know them. You know, there were some areas where we did worse, there were some areas where we were considerably better, and it just wasn't challenged. Don't hear it now. Yeah, you don't hear it now, because, you know, we know social care in England is, is in a mess. You know, we've managed to protect spending relatively for social care. But look, here we had somebody saying, you're not spending enough money in the NHS, well, at the same time, cutting our budget by 10%. You know, and half of our budget goes on health. Half of it. You know, we are, you know, it's a substantial, nearly half, substantial amount of money. You know, we can't go looking for savings in, in you know, Ministry of Defence uh, or, or the Foreign Office in the way that they could. But despite that, we spend more per head in Wales on health and social care. And we've always done that. But of course, this message was allowed to develop that somehow we cut spending on health. We never did that. So when you saw Ed face to face, would you say to him, Ed, you've got to rebut this oh, stuff. It's just God, not true. I did it all the time. Look, Ed, look, I think he took the view, well, people won't notice what's happening in Wales. You know, it's a side issue. I'm sure he took that view. He never said it, but I'm sure he took the view. What's important is we focus, and forget about that. That's, but it does have resonance. You know, when you got David Cameron saying, well, you know, the, 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 he said Office Dyke, when Office Dyke actually comes further into Wales and the border, you know, Office Dyke is, is the limiting life and death. It was, it was rubbish. It was completely rubbish. But that was allowed to develop as a narrative. We tried, but it's difficult. When you got, you know, the London papers against you, the, the, they've got a bigger, you know, foghorn than you've got as a, as a, as a government of a small, of a small country. Uh, but as I say, you don't hear it now. You know, we, we've got, you know, we, we, we're seeing... Delayed transfers of care going up in England, they're coming down in Wales. Our performance figures are far, far better than they were. You know, we had our problems. Let's not pretend that, 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 that it's been easy, but everyone in the UK has got problems. What do you do uh, with a service that could eat, you know, huge amounts of money more than you, than, than, than you give it? But you'd, you'd say to him, look, you need to rebut this, and he just, what, he would ignore you, or he'd say... We never did anything. Oh, look, Carl, we never did anything. <laughs> look, Carl, people don't care about the NHS in Wales. <laughs> yeah. He... People just don't give up. I come home, come Well, he, he, uh, you may say that. Uh, the, he never said it, but it was never, you know, we used to give them loads of information before PMQs, and they never used it. Never used it. So that was a real frustration for us. It was, I mean, even just as an observer, it was incredible how little that was rebutted. And you well, occasionally sort of hear the line now, but as you say, not as much as you did. No, I mean, it, it, people didn't believe it in Wales. You know, we were able to rebut it in Wales, but it just, they weren't after us. They were after the party in London to say, look, you know, if you've got Labour in charge, this is what they do somewhere else. It wasn't aimed at us. Mm. It was aimed at undermining the party in London, which we tried to say to the party in London. This, this is not, you know, it's not the Tories in London attacking Welsh Labour. This is attacking you, using us as a way to attack you. I don't think they quite got that. In terms of the party in London, were you ever tempted to, to, to pursue your ambition in Westminster rather than, than in the Assembly? Uh, before the assembly came about, yeah, yeah, I, I, I tried for selection for two, in two seats. I uh, didn't get them. My wife became very ill then, so I, I gave up. It was in the '97 uh, election. But after that, no, I didn't. You know, it was, it was, you know, it's not an easy lifestyle up here. Uh, if you're away from home half the half the week, 
uh, you know, going back and forth all the time. For me, I had the opportunity to go somewhere where, which is on my doorstep, effectively, and I've seen it grow. You know, we're now a primary lawmaking, tax varying parliament, uh, and that's you know that, that's that's grown over the past um, you know nine years since I've been in the job. So, no, the temptation was never there. But you, not to have been the first ever first minister to then become a prime minister. Oh no, 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 no! I'm not tempted by that at all. I mean, look, you've got to. You've got to come to a well. I could, I could try you, but I'd be divorced. Right? You've got to come to a point where you say to yourself, "You've done, you've, done, you've gone as far as you can in what you've chosen to do, and that's it. It's now time to move on to something else." Um, and I've never, I don't fancy the lifestyle. I just don't fancy the lifestyle of, of being, you know, of having to. If you're up in London, it's one thing, right? But doing that and managing a constituency far away yeah. is another. That's really tough. And I don't envy my uh, parliamentary colleagues from Wales and the work that they have to do to shuttle between the two. You know, I suppose if you're in, if you're in the Lords, you don't have a constituency, so it's, it's less difficult. But no, Commons, no, off me. Because at 51, you're young these days. Like the leader of the Labour Party is potentially our next Prime Minister. Isn't he? Well, 20 years older than you. What's, what's odd, of course, is that we went through this phase in politics where everyone was, was quite young. You know, Blair was 44. Yeah. You know, I was 42 coming in. Uh, you had, I mean, Nicola thinks in the 30s, maybe. I don't know. It, it, so we, and then all of a sudden, the leaders have got older again. It's just, you know, swings and runs. But I think what, you know, it's, it's not how old you are. It's the amount, the, number, the amount of time you've been in government. You know, when you've done it for 18 years, it's a long time. And uh, you, you've got to say to yourself, look, it, it's time to move on to something else. Uh, you know, your family, the stuff I've missed over the years... You know, not being able to get parents' evenings, the stuff I'm, you know, I'm not being able to get to. But that would have been awkward as First Minister. <laughs> yeah, I still turn up. You know, my son's now, and uh, it's great, because in, in the school my, my children uh, go to, um, I, I find a lot of the men have beards, which is useful for me, because I can tell them apart from the kids, because they're all so young. <laughs> they all look so young to me. Uh, but it's the stuff that I've missed. You know, we're due to go somewhere, but I can't go, because something else has, has, has happened instead. Uh, which, which is part of the job. I mean, you, don't, you, know, you don't complain about it, but it'd be nice not to have to do that as much in the future. Do you ever have those moments, you know, with, with family, particularly children at a school age, when you're in a position of leadership and you're running the country, where you have a conversation with a head teacher, where you know the, the school your children goes to finds itself in trouble, or the hospital that someone you know in is you know being talked about by David Cameron or anything like that? Um, no, I mean I, I've you know that people. People see me walking on town and pretend, you know, most of them know where I live, know the house is, um, which I'm not going to announce here, obviously. But the, I've never had that issue, you know. I, I, but, but you talk, you chat to people, and uh, as a normal parent, if you go to a parents' evening, you don't, you know, walk marching, I'm the first minister, you don't do that, that's just arrogant. Um, I was quite, I, I've got a rule as well, right, which is never refuse a selfie. Okay. Because you do that once, and people will remember that forever. Yeah. Um, and they'll be, you know, they, they'll be disappointed by it. So I always, you know, I'll always say yes to a selfie, no matter where it is. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. I was there last week, um, I had to go to the hospital for some tests. And uh, one of the tests involved lots of needles. And the two doctors who performed it uh, took an hour to do it. And then at the end said, can we have a selfie with you? <laughs> with me, on a bed, in, in, with the two of them. Like that. And I, I said yes, you know, it's, people would have thought, well, that's a bit strange, but I, I don't mind that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I was, I was uh, I've just come out from Iceland yesterday with my wife. We went away. It was 25 years since we got engaged in Iceland. Oh, congratulations. Uh, and uh, we, we thought, well, we'll go back. And 
on Monday, uh, we were there and uh, we, stayed, we were looking at these waterfalls, Gullfoss is called in, in Iceland. And the next thing, all, all these you know, youngsters arrived, all speaking Welsh. Uh, all right, okay, so I, I turned on, the teachers were there, one of the teachers looked at me, white, I thought, God, I was that a hat on, I had a, had a, bobble, you know, I had a warm hat on. Uh, so I started speaking to them and they, they just couldn't, why was I there? You know, what, you look, why are you here? I had a photo with them as well. You probably you know, yeah, and chat to them. You know, it's it's they, they, you know they they're there. You know they're amazed that you're there, but just chat to them normally. So it's it's I think it's really important uh, when you're in politics just just to talk to people, put them at their ease, and not give the impression that you're you know some high and mighty person. Never done that. Never liked it. So what's the demographic of people asking for selfies? Is it mainly kids or, or adults asking for these? Uh, younger generation mainly. Rolly Carwin, have a selfie, mate. Yeah, they Yeah, sometimes they do. Uh, sometimes it's Mr. Jones, but you know, it's bit, you know, anonymous in Wales, Mr. Jones. Uh, most people call me my first name because that's what you know. That's what they see in the, in the media. That's what they see in the papers. In, in, the headline in the paper would be Carwin says this, that, the other, and um, and I like it that way. I like that informality. I've never been somebody who's like formality. God, I mean, we're, we're going to go for a lot of my working life. But I've never liked that kind of formality. So I, I, I'll always encourage people to call me my first name, always. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's encourage that informality with tonight's, uh, with tonight's <laughs> audience. So ladies and gentlemen, we'll bring the uh, house lights up a little bit. If you'd like to ask Carwin a question, please uh, indicate. We'll get round as many as we possibly can. Jules is going to bring round uh, a microphone. If you can let us know your name uh, and your question, and we'll get round. If we can have one-sentence questions, and we'll go for one-sentence answers, we'll get round as many as possible. Right. So who would, like, uh, who would like to ask Carwin a question? Shout if I can't see. Yes, the gentleman down here. I don't know if uh, you can see him, Jules, with a check shirt. Good evening. Um, I had a, my, my question relates to what you were talking to about Brexit earlier on. And... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you said going into a general... Your preferred yeah. answer to the question is a general election. So what would Labour Party policy be going into that general election or... If you can't answer that, what would Carwin Jones's policy be going into that general election? Uh, stay in the customs union. Get the best access you can to the single market. Accepting you're going to be a rule taker, but that's going to happen anyway. You know, if we're going to, 60% of our exports from uh, of our overseas exports from Wales go into the single market. 90% of food and drink. You know, we're going to be rule takers if we want to sell in that market. Uh, and that, for me, is 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 the answer. It's, I mean, it's always the Irish issue. My wife is Irish. I was going on about this in the referendum, that Ireland would be the issue. Uh, you know, how do you have one part in the EU, one part outside the EU, and an open border? And hey-ho, here we are. Ireland is the issue. You, you solve a lot of that if both sides of that border are, are inside the customs union. But that's in the election. Eventually, mm. would you want to see Britain rejoin the EU? I never want us to leave. Uh, I think, you know, what I'd like... At this moment in time, I think it's difficult to say, well, let's rejoin, because... Once we leave, we're not going to get back in with the same terms as we have now, which are favourable. But what's important is we, we are able to, to sell into the single market without any new barriers. That's, that's really important. And that, to me, involves staying in the customs union as well. You know, Norway have managed to, I mean, the Norwegian deal isn't quite right for us. But if Norway can do it, why can't we? But at some point, it's not just the economics, it's the politics, isn't it, of, of, of the European Union, of Britain being a, a European player, sitting down with countries that we used to war with and, and the political and the peace benefits of all that. Do you think, can you imagine a time in, in our lifetimes when the Labour Party goes into an election saying we would want to rejoin the European Union? It's possible. 
It's possible. I don't think it would happen for, for some years. I think the focus now, people have voted to leave. You can't ignore that. You know, I, I, the reality is that that's what people wanted. So it's a question now of getting the best deal for Britain uh, and not you know, running away uh, into the middle of the Atlantic, which is what some of them, uh, some, some uh, Brexiteers seem to want to do. Uh, that's what we need to be doing. Say to people, look, you know, the reality is the US is not waiting to do a free trade deal with us. The reality is that, okay, we might have a free, free trade deal with Australia and New Zealand, which is great for them, it's not great for us. New Zealand's 4.8 million people. You know, the reality is we have the biggest, one of the biggest markets in the world on our doorstep. It's not going to float away. It's going to be on our doorstep. We'll have a land border with it. We can't get the arrangement right with that market. We've got no hope with anyone else. But you don't think Labour's going to be at any point in the near future suggesting rejoining? No, if I'm honest. But I do think we need to go into any election with a clear policy of getting the fullest access that we can and staying in the customs union. Because Corbyn at first said we should trigger Article 50, then he said we should stay in a customs union. Is he playing a clever game where he's allowing public opinion to get ahead and he's following it? Or is, are these the sort of reluctant incremental changes of a deeply Eurosceptic man? No, I, I think you know, it's a difficult issue. It cuts across party boundaries. You know, there are, there are passionate Remainers on the Conservative side, there are passionate Brexiteers on the Labour side. I think you know, it's one of those issues that it's, it's difficult to navigate because we don't know what people wanted in 2016 apart from wanting to leave. They didn't say how they wanted to leave or, or what sort of uh, deal they wanted to put uh, instead, and that's a difficult one to navigate. Okay, uh, do you have any more? Yes, the gentleman right next to the uh, gentleman. Um, I would ask, you have five weeks left. What, mm. How would you most like to see devolved to Wales in the next five weeks? In next five weeks? Gosh. Uh, <laughs> difficult next five weeks because the money would have to follow. Justice is the one that, that sticks out at the moment because it, it, justice is devolved in Scotland, it's devolved in Northern Ireland, it's not devolved in Wales. It's really awkward because, you know, the fire service is devolved, the ambulance service is devolved, but the police are not. Uh, if you look at the, the sort of support that's offered to prisoners when they leave prison, those services are all devolved. But the prison service isn't and the probation service isn't. It's really clunky and it doesn't really work. But it's, you know, it's a big change. It couldn't happen over five weeks, but it'll need to happen over time. So here's the thing. So you, you, you know you're leaving in five weeks. Have you written, like, your farewell speech yet? No, no, not yet. You've got to think of some well, soundbites for kind of, you know, that is that the end? Or well, the future Blair one? said, the end. That is that the, the end. end, is what he said. It's great. Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the next five weeks. Yeah, five, you've, got, you've, got to, you've got to make people cry, haven't you? Well, I think it's something at the time, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, well, no, you, uh, look, I've got my last Christmas discussions on the 11th of December. And, Christmas uh, special? That Christmas special, yeah. That's <laughs> got a beard. Holiday special, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll think of what to say then. You know, I'm still, there's still a lot to do. I know it didn't, it's not a long time, you know, 41 days or whatever it is, but there's still a lot to do in that time. Uh, that's, what I, that's what I'm focused on, not, you know, what shall I say now in December? And uh, it's all about, you know, what can I get done in the meantime? Yeah, that's a big speech. It's going to be one of the biggest you ever give. Yeah, yeah, but you know, give, go give viral. Time, got you got to think of the, clip, the Facebook clip, what goes out on Twitter. Like, yeah, the, well, the, the, do you want a job? Yeah, I <laughs> know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we'll we'll think about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll you know, I'll talk to the team. We'll think about what you know, what to say, what not to say. You've got to you got to get these things right. You know, these things can go wrong, and getting a tone right is really important. Are you worried that you'll get emotional? No, no, I don't. <laughs> so no. I mean, it is. It's strange to me because it, it's it's nine years. My mother died six days after I became first minister. Uh, not unexpectedly, because she'd had cancer for a long time. Uh, she saw me become the leader of Welsh Labour, but she, she'd slipped into a coma by the time I became First Minister. And that was quite, that was re really odd, because 
you know, I was going through a leadership election knowing my mother was terminally ill and having to deal with the two at the same time, so that was quite tough. Um, I lost my grandmother then, she was 99 in 2013. She was, you know, we're a small family, I'm an only child. I've got two first cousins, um, and then I lost uh, my uncle uh, quite recently. Uh, so that's, that was quite tough. I mean, I, I married somebody who was one of four, who has 40-odd first cousins, so I made up for it in other ways. Uh, but that's, as I was thinking about, because it seems to have gone quickly, you know, the nine years, yeah. but thinking about you know, the first speech I made where, you know, I remember saying, and my mother was ill in hospital, and, and you know, she'd, been, she'd been gone over a few years. I just wonder if on the day, the, 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 the enormity of the change to your life, the idea of legacy. I'll blame the lights, it's all right. Yeah, blame the lights, <laughs> get your yeah. yeah, sorry, it's the lights are really bright, you know. Because I get emotional watching even politicians that I didn't vote for. I, when Cameron left, I, I felt a real odd emotion where he said, I, I love my country. And his, and his voice went a bit, I thought, oh, God. <laughs> I was living with him and still am for what he did, but I was just like, oh, God. This is like a real, you're watching someone. How often do you see, and, and like you say, at a point of your choosing, powerful people leaving the stage when they've changed so many people's lives. Mm. In your case, you'd have changed so many people's lives for the better. Yeah, but going back to the point I said earlier on, you know, it's best to go at a time when people are saying, why is he going, not why is he leaving? Right? When, you, when you've been there too long, people are saying, oh, come on, the time that he, he moved on. You know, that's, you, you've got to discipline yourself. You, you, you know, you, there are so many politicians who are you know, dragged out of, of, of uh, politics, and usually after losing an election in the most brutal way imaginable. Yeah. You know, there are very few jobs in the world where you go into work and then the following morning you lose your job before a baying crowd who are delighted that you've lost your job. <laughs> you know, so there are not many, there are not many uh, jobs like that. No. Um, so for me, you know, I, you know, I had my family been great around me, uh, but for me, what's important is, uh, you know, to go at, at the time that's right, not just for you, but for other people to come in you know, to do it. You, you can't sit there forever. You sit there forever. You know, people get fed up of you. Uh, and you need to make sure that you've given your successes enough time as well to, to, to get to get used to the idea that there's going to be a leadership contest. But from your point of view, you've got to plan the day. So, like, you leave the Senate. Yep. And then, where are you going and how are you getting there? Because I'll never forget when Blair left Downing Street. He got the train at Darlington. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this. And there was no prime ministerial car. He's just waiting for a car. And yeah. a BMW pulls up and he presumes it's for him. And they go, no, 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 it's the Volvo. Yeah, and it was one of the most powerless, like the power just immediately gone. So you've got to think, make sure you've got a car booked. I, 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 can, I, can, I can drive, it's all right. Yeah, yeah. I don't use the train. So uh, it, no, that doesn't worry me. doesn't worry me at all. You've got to, get, you've got to think of all that. Are you going to go yeah. for a meal that night? Whereabouts? Go to Le Monde in Cardiff, the steak place. Have you been there? Yeah. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, other restaurants are available, of course. Yeah. But uh, yeah, look, it'll be... It's the time from the 12th of December when I'll, I'll, I'll go until Christmas. Yeah, the, the, this is constituency stuff that I haven't been able to do for years. You know, stuff you have to miss all the time, events. It'd be nice to do some of that work in the community again uh, for the next two years. You know, Will I'm, it? Does it worry me? <laughs> Will it really? Yeah. Oh, great. Fucking potato competition. Oh, I love it. No, 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 no. no. i tell you what. I once, I tell you a story. I once, I once went to a gardening club... Uh, competition in September where uh, I've got we've quite a big garden house we, we've got it's got an old house uh, the soil's awful right I tried and tried and tried to grow things in there and I put peas in one year and had a crop of peas and they all died all three rows died all at once so at this gardening club uh, I, I, I asked this um, I asked him I said look I said peas are watered and turned yellow and died oh he says the manure where do you buy the manure garden center oh useless he said useless got to buy it for the farm at which point the guy next to him said, 
You're talking rubbish, he said. Nothing wrong with the manoeuvre in the garden centre. And they started, they were both in the late 70s, and started arguing with each other in front of me about, you know, which manure was the most effective. Now, that's what I miss. <laughs> One pile of shit to another. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I know I like that. I enjoy, it's the stuff. It, it's, it's the work in the community. You know, at the end of the day, when you're sitting there in the surgery and you can help somebody, that's what it's all about. The speeches are just up there, they're the pinnacle. But if you, you've got to do the bread and butter work. And the, the best satisfaction is when you, when you can sort something out for somebody who's at the end of their tether. They've come to you last because they've gone everywhere else. They're apologetic. Oh, I didn't like to bother you, but I've come here. And I've got a good team as well, my constituency office. Really good. They, you know, they're used to doing a lot of work themselves. They have to. I'm not there most of the time. Uh, and that's what gives you the, the most satisfaction. Are you, are you already thinking about how weird it's going to be to have to have been the leader of Welsh Labour and the leader of a country and then have to sit on the back benches? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be troublesome. Holding an overbearing executive to uh, to account. I say that people take it seriously. Um, no, it's you know you've got to your know, life life doesn't stay the same. Life changes, you know, and you, you've got to. But have you, you got, got a plan? Are you thinking right? I, I won't make any public statements for my last two years as a, about the. Direction. Oh no no no! I, what I'll never do is criticise my successor. I won't do that. I don't think that's fair. Um, you know, I have opinions on things now and again, but you know, when Rodri stood down before me, he was. Nothing but supportive, and I'll, I'll be doing the same thing to my successor, whatever happens. I think you have to do that. Okay, we've got time for one last question. Uh, yes, just over there, just by the bar. I can't really quite see it. So, this is the final question. That this can be the best question of the whole evening. No pressure, but we'll give it a shot. Um, my name's Rachel, I'm a Bristolian, so I'm your sworn enemy, but I'm really impressed by everything you've said tonight. Uh, when so, you did you say Rotarian? Bristolian. Oh, Bristolian, my lover. Bristol. I've got nothing against Bristol, it's all right. No, no, but the Bristolian's got a lot against the world. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, we can shift the border, that's all right. <laughs> um, in 20 or 40 years' time, when you, when you, you know, how will you hope that your time in office has been remembered? I hope we're still here. <laughs> in, in, in 40 years' time. Um, that I left Wales in a better state than I found it. Look, we've got unemployment at 3.8%. It's, it's below the UK average, below England. That would never, we never thought that was possible 20 years ago. We had the best direct, foreign direct investment figures for 30 years. We had Aston Martin coming into Wales. You know, Qatar Airways flying into Cardiff Airport, which five years was, was on the verge of closing down. You know, it's it's and that we've kept, we've managed to keep public spending uh, as high as we can despite having austerity. You know, if we were in the same position now as we were in two thousand and nine, our budget would be twenty percent higher than it is now. Uh, but we've managed to you know it's been it's been hard work, but we've managed to make sure that public services in Wales have been decimated. It's not been easy. You know, we, we could always do with more money, but that's that's really what. Um, what I'd like to be remembered for. You know, in 2009, I came in uh, and austerity hadn't started, and then I announced I'm leaving, and then Theresa May says, oh, austerity's finished now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, thanks for that. That's, you know, but, yeah, that's it. And, and it can only be remembered, you know, as somebody who left, who, who took a country and left it in a better state than he or she found it. Can't ask more than that. What a wonderful note to end on. And maybe, is that perhaps a preview for the, for the final speech? <laughs> I'll have to wait and see. That felt like a good, that felt I'll like a I'll do it all in Welsh. Time. You have to have a translated. Oh, yeah. It's not going to go viral if it's in Welsh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> What's this about? Well, you know, it's, it's um, no. 
It'll be bilingual. Uh, now nah, we'll see. No, it, it's. What do you say? I mean, you, you've got to. The thing is, you can't be true to yourself, can you? It's a bit. It's not be humble. You know. Well, but no. what's odd about it, right? Is, is you know, I've had so many people saying to me, "Oh, enjoy your retirement now." I, mean, I, can't, I can't retire. And then people start talking about you. You're not there, you know. Oh yes, he's done a good job, and yes, he'll be remembered as if I'm dead. Uh, so in some ways, you get this, get the sort of your own obituaries as well. Yeah, you can't compliment yourself, but you could put other people's compliments in there, can you? You could say, I meet people who say I'm the best first minister. It's not for me to say that. <laughs> they say I saved this country. I say, yeah. please don't say that. <laughs> I'm a modest man, I'm the best first minister of all time. But, but that, right? that that would be Neil Kinnock talking, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, it's it's. We'll see, yeah, look, we'll, we'll, yeah, across that bridge when we come to it. See, it seems, okay, in some ways it's not that far away, but there's still a lot to do before then. There is a lot to do. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this has been such a special night. Um, it, I don't think we've, it's just so peculiar to talk. Firstly, I massively respect you coming to, to London. I mean, I'm sure you're in London anyway. Yeah, um, it's not that scary, the way it's. No, but. <laughs> I, was, I did study here for a year, it's all right, I got used to it then. But yeah. people who are in charge don't often come on shows like this. They they come on before and they come on after. But people yeah. in leadership positions are always slightly wary of. Yeah, but I'm leaving. Yeah, no, but still, <laughs> no, no, don't talk yeah. the stock down, mate. I thought you're still, <laughs> still technically in charge, aren't you? So it's, it's no, you're definitely in charge. So it's a cut. It's yeah, but look, <laughs> but what what you what what you don't have the chance to do. Yeah. Oh, you're in my job. It's something like this. Yeah, it's all formal interviews. It's all about policy. It's, it's never you never get the chance to to talk about your job and about politics, but in a in a more sort of informal way. You know, people say, "Oh, I can't say this. I can't say that." Uh, and I think it's you know, that's what we've lost in politics. You don't get these days. You don't get to know the person behind the politics. It's all to do with what they're saying politically, no matter what. Like, like, that was my staff over there. <laughs> 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 Thank that's you in the speech. That's and that's the speech. The, there we are. Put, if you just amplify that, of course, in the, uh, in, in the podcast. And that, that's part of the problem. I think we, we've gone... We're in an age of celebrity, right? Politicians are not supposed to be celebrities. But people, I think, want to know a little bit more about the people they vote for. Mm. Uh, and I think there's a real gulf at the moment between... You know, years ago, there was a gulf... You know, there's a gulf between politicians and the public years ago. You know, it's not as if... You know, there's a story about a Labour MP being elected in 1945, first time in a rural constituency. Uh, being seen off by uh, by the station staff in full, you know, ceremonial regalia, and the station master coming up to him and saying, "If it's not too much trouble, sir, would you mind letting me know when you're going to pay your annual visit to the constituency? Because you know we'd like to dress up because that's what happened. You know, there's a story about some some of those MPs at one time would get six or seven letters a year. Well, that, that, that doesn't work anymore. So the job has changed, but it's also meant that people can become because pol politics has become much more professionalised. Uh, than it was even, I think, 25, 30 years ago. There's a sense of disconnection there, and I think that's what we've seen, not just in the UK, but elsewhere. And it's important for, for politicians in the future to show that, you know, at the, we got families too. You know, we got real lives as well. Uh, it, we don't live our entire lives in the political world. And I think that's what will gain respect from the public. That's right, and, th and that's why one of the big questions that sort of dominated the last few years was one that, that gave that sort of insight from the Prime Minister. So I guess, uh, as your department has I should ask you, what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? I've been on rugby tours. I'm not saying that. Some of the things, some of, the things of course, um, are still prosecutable. So uh, I wouldn't do that. I've seen several eyebrows disappear uh, over time. Uh, I tell you the daftest thing I've done, because I did it this week. Uh, when I was in Iceland, I tried the fermented shark. 
don't try that, right? It's because you go there, bravado, yeah, I'm gonna build that. What? How bad can it be? You, you, it smells as if the gates of hell have been opened. <laughs> uh, it's got the consistency of pineapple. It doesn't taste as bad. It tastes like a like a right brie, if you like. But it was. I just couldn't get the smell off my fingers for about two days. And uh, yeah, that was. I'm still. I'm still up for a challenge in that way. I'm not, not that I do anything like celeb. I was celebrity or anything like that. But um, yeah, that was that was the daftest thing I've done certainly recently. But naughtiest. There are too many people. If I tell stories, there are too many people who've got stories they can tell about me. It's too dangerous. <laughs> That's a good tactful answer. Um, Carmen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you've been a phenomenal audience. We're back next month when my guest is Emily Thornbury. Ooh. So that's exciting. Uh, and in January, my guest will be David Blunkett. There you go, very polite. Um, <laughs> polite, muted response to, uh, to uh, headline guests. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for coming. And please give a huge thank you to the wonderful Carwin Jones. <laughs> There you go, Carmen Jones, what a fantastic guest. At the time of recording, he had 41 days left. He will leave the leadership of Wales at 51. He will uh, leave the Senate uh, at 53. And you just think, this, this is so peculiar. It's partly because he came in so young, but he's such a pragmatist. He totally understands leadership. From the moment he came on stage, he's absolutely charismatic. He is someone who really takes leadership and politics seriously, who engages with it properly, who is uh, respectful to his opponents, who uh, assesses their strengths and is respectful about them, despite having disagreements. And at a time, I mean, at any time you need people like that, but particularly at a time like this, it feels that you need that pragmatism, that quality and that experience at the heart of UK politics. And it's a shame that he's leaving. And obviously he's been entirely focused on Wales. Obviously he contributes to UK politics through that vessel, really. But you do feel like you know, if he was in the Labour shadow cabinet or if he was leading the Labour Party, Labour would just be in a completely different place, perhaps, um, for his influence. So, who knows what the future holds for him? I wish him every success indeed. And who knows what his last First Minister's questions will hold, or his, his final speech. I wonder if we've heard some of the words, some of the phrases... Well, undoubtedly some of the words, but in what order indeed? Some of the phrases or, or themes uh, from, his, from his departure speech. And I wonder if the emotion might catch up with him. But he's a stoic uh, individual. I don't think he's uh, uh, prone to... Uh, that much public emotion, but we shall see. We'll see. We'll see how the, how the moment gets him. And obviously, if you listen to this in the future, uh, or, you know, x amount of time in the future, this will already be known. So perhaps you'll be reflecting on Prime Minister Jones and the incredible career that he went on after leaving uh, the Welsh Assembly. But there we go, he was brilliant. Our next guest is Emily Thornbury, which I cannot wait for. Um, that's in November at the Other Palace. In January, it's David Blunkett. Before, well, in between those two, I've got two Christmas specials at the Leicester Square Theatre. If you've been to them, and indeed if you've heard them, you'll know... Uh, that they are raucous affairs. Um, uh, uh, they have a slight life of their own, um, even compared to the ones at the other palace. And I'm just putting the finishing touches now to some excellent guests for both nights. Um, so you can book those tickets to the Leicester Square Theatre because it's at a different venue. You can go there. And in terms of stand-up, I'm doing two nights, very lucky to be in two nights on the South Bank at the prestigious Southbank Centre on the 1st and on the 5th of December this year of the show that I took to Edinburgh, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, which so many of you were very kind about. Uh, it will, I'll be performing an updated version of that at the Southbank Centre on the 1st and 5th of December. You can get tickets uh, for that through the Southbank Centre website, but I shall pop it in the... Um 
in the iTunes description uh, or SoundCloud or whatever it is, description that you get on here. So there you go. Um, the political party at the other palace, I think I'm right in saying is sold out until April next year. But always check on my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford, and follow the other palace on Twitter because usually on the day there are a couple of what we call production holds that get released. Um, so there's always the chance on the day of getting a pair of tickets. So do uh, do follow those and follow Carwin on Twitter as well. Um, again, I should put his details in the uh, in the little notes that you get on your iPhone and on your um, laptop. I sound like such a technophobe, even though I know how these things work. Um, so there you go. Um, thank you for downloading. As always, if you could um, leave a review, if you could tell your friends about it, even if you just tell one mate and get them to listen to it, it, uh, it just makes all this a little bit more worthwhile. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you soon. ta Bye.